Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which we are based, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and extend that respect to the elders past and present. Hello everyone, my name is Winnie and welcome to the first EWB UNSW Inspire podcast of 2021. Just a quick recap, EWB is a group of student volunteers who use our engineering knowledge, resources and passion towards the goal of creating change through humanitarian engineering. Our first exciting podcast is in collaboration with AIAA UNSW, a student branch of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics that works towards shaping the future of aerospace both in Australia Australia and globally. So a little bit about me. I'm in my third year studying aerospace engineering and physics. I'm one of the project coordinators for EWB UNSW, but I'm also the events director and avionics team member for AIAA UNSW and their rocketry team. And joining me today, I have Daniel Faber from OrbitFab. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Would you like to introduce yourself and talk a bit about what you do? Thanks, sure. Uh, great to be here, Winnie. Um, yeah, my name is Daniel Faber. I'm the CEO of OrbitFab. We are building gas stations in space. We're building the propellant supply chain. I was a, uh, a UNSW student back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, did mechanical, mechatronic engineering, uh, and then found that there were no space jobs. There was no space agency. There are no space companies in Australia. So I set off around the world to find out how to build spacecraft properly, having started the BlueSat project in, uh, at UNSW and spent four years really learning how not to build spacecraft. Um, so that was fun. I got to, to build uh, about a dozen satellites sort of on the core engineering team uh, in several countries, Europe, North America, uh, and even back in Australia, working on the, uh, the last time Australia tried to have a space program with the Australian Space Research Program. Um, and then I started building companies. So OrbitFab is my fourth serious startup. And uh, I guess the first one that has VC backing um, we are, uh, we're trying to solve the problem that all satellites have to be thrown away when they run out of fuel. So we're building gas stations in space. We will deliver the fuel to people where they need it, when they need it, what type of fuel they need. That's our goal. Wow. Okay. So can you talk to us a bit about the future of aerospace? Like what are you and your team's visions? Yeah. And when I was in first year undergrad, um, you know, I was building solar cars and hang gliding and windsurfing and, and doing all these under, undergrad things and was trying to think about what I wanted to do with my life, realized that you know, I wanted to do something useful for humanity and I wanted to do something that would be fun. Um, and because I can integrate, I realized that addressing existential risks was, uh, was possibly the most important thing that we could work on. And, uh, and if we wanted to, to address a bunch of those, getting people off this rock, creating a, a permanent jobs so that we could have people living permanently and, and starting to actually settle space would be one of the most important things we could ever do. And, uh, and that sounded like a fun career. So, so that was sort of where I, uh, I started this idea in first year undergrad. Uh, and I wrote down a list of all the industries that I thought could justify the first permanent job in space. And that list was, uh, you know, I, got, I crossed out communications and remote sensing because robots are doing those quite well. And, uh, and I had uh, various other things that just weren't big enough businesses. And I ended up with only three things, space-based solar power, mining and tourism and i did the math on space-based solar power and you have to put a lot of mass in orbit uh, and so the math worked out that either we needed very cheap launch vehicles or we needed asteroid mining uh, and so i crossed that one out uh, because launch vehicles weren't getting cheaper very quickly at all and uh, and i couldn't see myself as a tour operator so i decided i'd spend my life working on asteroid mining and that's basically what i've been doing for the the, the last 25 years 
Uh, and that's why I started building satellites uh, and then started building companies because nobody else was doing what I wanted to do. Uh, no one had a business model that would work. So after 15 years, I, I figured out a business model and a strategy. And, uh, and that's how I, uh, I got, got into this. So the last company that I ran, Deep Space Industries, our big, hairy, audacious goal was asteroid mining. Uh, what we actually did when I, I came in as CEO of that company, uh, we started building small thrusters, uh, effectively flying steam kettles, where we would vent um, superheated steam, water vapor, uh, out the back. And, uh, and that would, of course, push the, the satellite forward. And it was very simple, um, but it filled a need. There was, there was no small thruster for, for small satellites to move around in orbit. Strategically, from our perspective, it could run off water, which is something we know we can get out of the asteroids and the moon. And so it was the first commercially available water thruster. And it solved that first problem. If we wanted to ever sell things from asteroids and the moon, we did the math and it makes much more sense to sell material in Earth orbit than to try and bring back metals to the surface of the Earth and, and sell them here. So we had to create a market because it didn't exist for propellants. And none of the propellants um, had, uh, were ones that we were able to use um, so to make from materials from the, from the moon or asteroids because they all have a, either have nitrogen in them and there's not, no nitrogen on the moon or the asteroids, very, very little. Uh, or they have noble gases like xenon and there's no noble gases on the moon or the asteroids. And so that's why we started looking at water and then other things, hyper, simple hydrocarbons uh, that we could get from the asteroids and the moon. So we started building that line of thrusters to get all the satellites addicted to fuels that one day could be provided from, uh, from the asteroids. And then uh, now at OrbitFab, this is effectively step two, we're making a market for that propellant in orbit. And one day we hope to, put, to place a purchase order with an asteroid mining company and buy the material that we can put into our supply chain. Until then, we lift everything from the ground. But that's, that's really the long-term goal and why we're doing this. Wow, okay. So it's really great to see that you're propelling this um, idea of satellite reusability. So, you know, providing refueling infrastructure by building gas stations in space. Could you let our viewers know what kind of environmental benefits could we see coming down this path? And how do you think our lives here on Earth would change once industries start shifting towards space? You know, when I talk to investors about the benefits from uh, having a fuel supply and being able to refuel satellites, I start, of course, with, you know, we're losing billions of dollars each year. It's about three and a half billion dollars worth of, of satellites is, is thrown away or lost every year. You know, that, that's the value that we can bring to the industry. But the real, so one, one of the bigger costs that we see is just the, the increase in space debris. Right? So every piece of uh, every object, everything we launch into space, it goes up into this friction envi frictionless environment. Most of them just keep going around forever or effectively forever, long enough in, in human time span that, that it's forever. And then if they run into another object there, be it a, another piece of debris or, or a, a micrometeorite or something, it can create a shower of, of debris particles from that collision, which then also stay in orbit for effectively forever. So we're in danger of just creating this cascade effect where one creates more, creates more, and filling regions of space with debris, which could end up denying access to space or to at least to, to some of the best orbits to, to all future generations. Right? This, this could be catastrophic, catastrophic if, we, if we let this continue. And the risk is real. The probability of this happening sometime in the next 50 years is better than 50%. So we've really got to get in there and, and remove some of the more risky pieces of debris. And you can't do that unless you've got the fuel to go out, grab the debris, drop it in the atmosphere, it'll burn up and go and get the next piece of debris. Because otherwise you're launching a tow truck 
or a garbage truck, you, you tow three pieces of, of debris out and then you have to throw away your garbage truck because you ran out of fuel. It's a ridiculous idea. So we have to provide this fuel to be able to go out and clean up space. And exactly, so that's yeah. So it's kind of like um, some people have mentioned that when we send things up into space with debris and it comes back down in the ocean, we find a way to retrieve it. But obviously, as you mentioned, that that's probably very hard to do. So refilling is probably the best idea. Yeah, that's right. And if we can refuel the assets, we can keep, keep using them. If we can refuel the garbage trucks, we can keep removing the pieces of debris and, and keep space safe. That's a, a huge issue in the space industry. Yeah. So for people who don't really, for our viewers who haven't um, gotten quite an understanding of aerospace and space engineering, could you give a bit more insight on how you know that field of engineering helps contribute to global aid and what has it done for mankind so far? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question and, and easy for me to see because I'm very close to it. But um, what, what, has, what has happened? Let's see, if you go back 50 years before, before the, there was a, a space industry, I mean, connection, global communications connections didn't really exist. They were, they were somewhat piecemeal and, and were only being delivered to, um, you know, only connections were between major cities. What satellites did was really connect the rest of the world. And that's still happening. And the, the terrestrial fiber and, and build out of communication systems has been dramatic, but satellites are still providing connection to all the places that you haven't got wires to yet. So that's hugely important. Um, the, so the communication side is probably the biggest part of the commercial space industry. Um, the, next, the next part of the, the industry is, is Earth observation, where we're looking down and imaging the Earth. And if you consider if we have a, a data set about the whole globe and can start making decisions about what's happening real time with how things are changing, where the rainfall is happening, where the, the temperature is changing, the tides um, and, and the movements, being able to track where ships are, being able to track where, uh, you know, where, where everything is, how it's moving, you can probably increase the, the, the decisions like the efficiency of the global economy by about 1%. And 1% of the economy is a trillion dollars. So to have that global data set and be able to action that data set is a trillion dollar business. Uh, and that's what the remote sensing companies uh, are now building towards and, and improving the capabilities. And then there's an, another area which isn't a business model for the space industry because it's become a, uh, a sort of public good that's provided. And that's GPS, which gives us position, navigation and timing. And if you think about all of the apps that you're running from, from maps to Uber to, and everything wants to know your location because it's so valuable to know. It's fascinating to read a history of surveying and how hard they had to work to figure out where on earth they actually were. It's, it, was, it was a problem for millennia. Nobody knew precisely where they were. It took a long time to figure it out, a lot of very complicated things. These days, we pull this out and press a button and it tells us exactly where we are and it's accurate to within a meter, it's amazing. That's because we have GPS satellites. All bank transactions um, and, and uh, stock trading and everything rely on the timing that comes from GPS satellites. It's an incredible benefit to the global economy that the governments of the world, the, 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 the US GPS system, uh, European Galileo, there's a, there's a couple of others, they are providing those, those signals um, you know, effectively as a, as a public good. These are, these are absolutely amazing. So these are some of the things that, that touch our lives every day. And if they went away, I mean, we'd, we'd have huge problems from, from the communications, from our understanding of weather and, uh, and, and sort of global effects and changes to just being able to locate and move around and, and use maps these days. 
Um, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of things besides, and the, the list is very long, but they're the very tangible things that we see and feel. Right. So OrbitFab was the first private company to supply water to the International Space Station. And that's really impressive, um, the way that it was fully developed in just four months. Could you give some insight um, for us to, about your processes and steps your company took to achieve this? Yeah, we, we started the company in 2018. It took us four or five months to get funding. Uh, and then uh, simultaneously, we were working with the International Space Station US National Lab, uh, which is like a, a, they're treating the International Space Station as a research center. So it's separately funded than, than NASA. Um, and yeah, we talked to them and said, we want to build this commercial activity. And their purview is, is research and commercialization. And so they offered us um, the, the ability to launch some mass to the space station. Uh, which you know, we built two tanker test beds uh, and then some astronaut time on the station to be able to use those and sort of look at the slosh dynamics and the various things of how we transfer fuel. And we said, well, let's also plug it into the station when we're done because we, we were using water because it's, it's astronaut safe. Um, and let's, let's just give you the water when we're done because we know that it's valuable uh, on the space station. And that, of course, blew the minds of a lot of people at NASA because they have their contracts set up. They know how to how to get water to the space station. And here we were saying, oh, we're going to do it completely differently. And, uh, and let's just plug in and, uh, and make it happen. So it took a long time to get them to agree to that. One of the other quirks was that if you have a gallon of water and it gets loose in the space station and, and gets onto an astronaut's face, they can't brush it away. Right? It doesn't drain. And the strongest force is surface tension. So it sort of wrap around your hand and stay on there and, and you'll stay coated in water. And so you can drown in a gallon of water and you can't yell for help either because it's, it's covering you. So, so they, they said, look, this is a catastrophic level hazard. That's what they classified it as. And they threw the book at us in terms of safety. You need to have you know, triple layer controls and, and, um, and everything like that. So, so we had to jump through all of those hoops. They expected it would take us 24 to you know 18 to 24 months, and uh, but we we saw a launch at the end of end of that year. And we said we want to hit that launch. The handover for that launch is four months. We're going to do it in four months, and they thought we were mad. We we didn't end up with a final set of requirements from NASA saying like this is what you have to meet until two weeks before we shipped the hardware. So we had to navigate the designing something for which we didn't know whether the requirements were fixed and it was all about sort of personal relationships understanding the situation getting an agreement that if we design this it's probably going to be okay let's design it and test it a lot of back and forth uh, James Boldertude who's also a UNSW grad uh, he, he was our chief engineer uh, he just joined us at the time he was absolutely brilliant managing that uh, and all the contractors and everything else so yeah we, we managed to do it they extended the delivery due date to four and a half months um, and, uh, and so, yeah, we, we pulled it off in four and a half months, which, you know, I think is the fastest time frame for, uh, from a napkin to, to, to handing over fully flight qualified, you know, human rated flight hardware, definitely for a, uh, for a mission critical system. Wow. Okay. So apart from safety, was there any other like space laws that govern these things that you ran into? Um, like with your other startups as well, like such as space mining, wouldn't there be some laws around that, that you and your team struggled with? Yeah, there definitely are. Um, thankfully, the International Space Station, all the countries involved have signed a liability waiver saying that they won't sue each other if something goes wrong and that they all understand that there's risk in, in doing that. And so our experiment came under that. Uh, NASA then, of course, has its, its own requirements. It's not like they say, oh, we've now got a liability waiver, you can do what you want. No, no, there's, 
has a lot of requirements. It's a $200 billion asset, the International Space Station. So they're, they're very strict on that. But in terms of regulations and, and legislation, we, we didn't have to worry too much about that for that launch. But as we look to uh, you know, how we provide propellant and then uh, how our customers are doing you know, deorbiting and, and satellite servicing and how ultimately this ecosystem has asteroid mining, there are huge legal questions that aren't resolved. And on the asteroid mining side, the Outer Space Treaty says that uh, no nation can appropriate directly or indirectly uh, the moon or other celestial bodies. But it doesn't define whether asteroids are celestial bodies or whether because you can tow them around, they're, they're just what they call chattel, right? You can, you can pick them up from space and move them somewhere else. Therefore, they're not real estate and therefore it doesn't count. And there's, there's no um, definitive answer on that. It hasn't been defined in international law. Uh, it also doesn't say whether a private company or a private citizen can have ownership uh, or whether they can own the, uh, the resources that we extract. It doesn't say that we can't either, but it does say that governments are responsible for um, managing and approving and regulating the activities of their, their citizens and, and their companies. And so different countries are now interpreting this treaty, sometimes in different ways and developing their own national legislation. So Australia has signed the Moon Treaty which basically says no private company can own any part of the moon either, and no private person. Um, but Australia is in, in a minority in that. Uh, it means that I would have trouble owning the moon because of my Australian citizenship. I, I'd have trouble buying a piece of the moon. Um, whereas anyone who's, uh, who's from a, a country that hasn't signed that wouldn't have trouble. And, uh, and so will Australia withdraw from that treaty or not? Because now Australia is lined up behind the Artemis Accords and the Artemis Accords specifically rejects some of the principles in the Moon Treaty. So there's a bit of controversy around this, but because it hasn't been done yet, no one's gone out and tested it, then there's no precedent. And so the legal, the legal um, frameworks are built up on uh, treaties, legislation, regulations, and uh, most of it actually is precedent. And so the precedents have to be set before we'll really know what's going to become standard and become law. It's absolutely fascinating. So do you think they will ever have these laws set in stone? Like everyone's going to be able to understand it and they're going to be like, all right, so, you know, we can finally go into space and would it be first come, first serve? Like if your company discovered something, would you have rightful ownership of it or who does it belong to? So, yeah, at the moment, it doesn't belong to anybody if you, uh, if you find something. Um, the U.S. law says that if a U.S. company or, or person extracts that material, that mineral, uh, that material, they then own it, which is actually very similar to how fishing in international waters works. That the fish are a commons, uh, and nobody owns them, even if you put a net around them. But once you have them out and onto your deck or onto your boat, they're now yours. And so that's how the U.S. mirrored their uh, space mining um, uh, legislation was on that concept. So, you know, these things have to be worked out. Will anybody ever be able to understand them? Well, I'd ask, can anybody understand the mining laws? Um, but what we will have is, is um, you know, standard practices. It'll be, it'll be navigable. Uh, we'll be able to figure it out. When I look at, uh, at this and sort of cast my, my thoughts into the, into the future, the Earth is, is fairly finite in surface area. There's much more material in the asteroid belts. We're going to be able to turn the asteroids into living spaces that can house you know, trillions of people, far more than, than live on the surface of the Earth. Uh, eventually, it is inevitable that the in-space economy will be bigger than the Earth economy. And for that to happen, we're going to establish these precedents. People are going to figure out how to, how to work with it. It's going to become normal. Uh, it may take a while. The question, though, is when, not if. Right. 
So what would you say some are um, some of the biggest concerns our world and the space industry face today? I think space debris is most definitely one of those. That is that is a huge problem and a, and a huge risk to the industries that we have, you know, some of these collisions, which you know, it's, a, it's a probabilistic thing with all these spacecraft uh, whizzing around in, in orbits, which are inevitably chaotic. The, the three body problem is real. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's that's a huge risk to the industry. Uh, another risk to the industry is that the lawyers get ahead of actual execution and uh, and end up passing some laws that are a detriment and a deterrent to investment. And uh, and as a result, they could set back the industry by 50 years. That's that's a real risk. Um, it's diminishing as, as different countries take uh, take approaches that that do promote commercial investment. But uh, but we still yet to see how that fully plays out. Um, and you know, liabilities around what happens when when rich tourists inevitably there's going to be an incident involving rich tourists and what's the backlash to that? All of that's got to work itself out as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's a huge number of things that, that have to be worked out um, that that you know carry risk that in the working out of, of them they result in regulations or, or legislation or perception or something that sets back the industry. Um, you know, Folks like me are trying to find ways to accelerate past a lot of those critical points. Yeah. So we see that um, the aerospace industry itself has grown quite a lot throughout the years. So as you mentioned, with space law and everything that governs it, as well as, you know, sending um, stuff into space, what are your thoughts on school outreach and education? So about the importance of students learning more about space and engineering and its connection with our world issues. Yeah, I think space inevitably is an international um, arena, right? Every, it, it affects every country. It's above every country. Um, it's hard to, to look at space and say, oh, we can do this unilaterally. And so it's, it's, um, it's also sort of the overview. We're looking down at the, at the whole earth and you can fly over every country. So it's, it's a great sort of environment uh, for, for thinking about holistic problems and problems that affect the whole world. The, uh, the UN's, um, what are they, the, the Global Development Goals, um, I think there are 20 of them and 17 of them really need space to address them properly, to understand, for example, the environment. You have to understand the global um, you know, flows of, of energy and, uh, and heat and water and oceans and rivers and everything. It's a very global problem to model the, the environment and you need that, that view from above to be able to see what's happening. Um, you need the, the view from above gives you a view of, of how um, the economy and, and standards of living are changing and how deforestation is happening and, and the efficiency of farming. All of these things are, are critically important to managing uh, the earth, the resources, uh, and being able to support you know, seven and a half, eight billion people without overstressing the planet. That's a, that's a tough job that we have to do. Um, but space gives us a perspective to be able to make those intelligent decisions and be able to see what the effects are so we can correct them. It's super, super important. And so education, I'm, just from, uh, from developing the skills for people to work in the industry, the space industry is growing. A lot is happening. And it's, it's a highly technical field. Uh, Australia has a, an excellent education system, and I'm not surprised to see more and more Australians being in this field. Um, that's great. And one day we'll call them uh, petrol stations in space rather than gas stations. That'd be good. Um, but uh, yeah, just the education to, to understand what's happening, to be able to make intelligent decisions and uh, when using and buying um, the services and products, 
um, and, and thinking about how Earth these systems interact with space systems for, for maximum effect, and then participating in building and, and operating and using the space systems, and ultimately building and participating in that in that in orbit economy. We need to we need to have a constant flow of, of great people. Uh, understanding, trained, and enthusiastic about these things. It's absolutely critical. Yeah, so based on what you're saying, that just means more jobs in the future. So what kind of opportunities will people be getting themselves into? Like, what will be available? Oh, gosh, uh, everything. The, um, when, when you think about tech, um, you know, it used to be nerds in their basements building <laughs> their own little, like, computer boards or IBM building mega mainframes, but it was all nerds with pocket protectors. Um, Space started out in a similar kind of way, but just like now, tech is, you know, it's a lot about design, user interface, um, the, the business models, the marketing, there's so much going on that, that is tech. Space is, is the same thing, right? It's transitioning from being really heavily technology focused to being more about usability, products, businesses, everything like that. So one thing that the space industry suffers from is a bit of hubris. People who are in it have been in it for a while think that, you know, I worked at NASA and we know better. And then they start ignoring all the great products that have been developed and the processes and everything else in all the other industries. What we need is to flip that and have all these spin-in technologies uh, and, and processes and ideas and designs come to the space industry and then it will improve. And because VCs are now getting involved, there's a lot more investment capital, there's a lot more commercial activity, we're starting to see that. And so that means there's opportunities to people who um, you know, studied all, all different types of things, or you know, not even at university, right? We need technicians, we need people who are, who are handy. Um, we, need, we need just a, a lot of people who are going to be able to, uh, to use and, and, and operate and, and maintain. And one day, just living and, and working in space, we're going to need teachers, we're going to need hospitals, every single industry will start operating in space. Uh, and I'd say that's going to start happening in about 10, 15 years time. Um, then it gets really exciting. Uh, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Right. So what's the most rewarding part about what you do? Oh, gosh, um, the most rewarding. And I, I, I set out with this goal of creating permanent jobs in space, you know, built on a, on a bustling space economy. The most rewarding thing is being able to see how much has changed in, that, in the 25 years that I've been working on this, where at the beginning, all the business plans were basically give me a billion dollars and I'll save the world, which is a terrible way to write a business plan. Now there's a lot more maturity in how to bootstrap a product and, and how to bring it to market. The investors are a lot more informed about space. The technologies that are available to build, a, uh, to build systems and then build new business ideas on, it's all so much more accessible. That's perhaps the most exciting thing is just to have seen how much progress has been made. And to be honest, most of that progress has been in the last three or four years. Right? It has finally crossed this threshold and now it's accessible. I mean, even Australia has a space agency. Uh, it was the last country in, the, in I think, the, uh, the top 50 or, or 60 uh, of the global economies. And Australia is like number 18. It was the last of the countries to get a space agency, uh, but it has one now. And, and you can see what's happening with the startup companies in Australia. Um, there's a lot more support. Investors are getting the idea uh, that, that there's money to be made. And these, these are huge steps forward. And so, yeah, that's, that's super exciting to see. And just to, to see that people are having ideas that are well beyond what I could imagine. Uh, we need more people coming in with more diverse ideas to, to try things out. And, uh, and you know, some of them will succeed, a lot of them won't. But the only way to find the ones that will succeed is to, is to, to try, out, try a lot of different things. And that's what's happening now. A lot of amazing things are being tried. 
Yeah. So do you have any advice for um, any students or passionate individuals that want to pursue a similar path and get into what we're doing today? Yeah, most important thing, I A, keep learning. <laughs> There's always more to learn. Um, B, just, just get involved with things. Um, if you, and when I was an undergrad, there was no really no space in the aerospace department in mechanical engineering. So we decided we'd just build a satellite, which was a crazy idea. And um, we spent four years, like I said, learning how not to build a satellite. But that allowed me to argue my way into a job actually building satellites. Uh, we just jumped in and tried to do it. And, uh, and so when we, when we hire people at OrbitFab, we're always asking the question, what have you built, right? And that's for engineers, you know, what technical things have you built? Has, has somebody used your products in anger? Uh, you know, has somebody trying to use them for something, for something that, that was not just the joy of, of seeing it turn? Um, and, and similar thing for, for anyone who's doing marketing or, or, or business or accounting, what have you, have you, have you, have you done something real, right? Have you, have you started a project and, and been able to run it through and say, hey, look, I did that. Right. I built that, I, uh, I designed that, I operated that, I, I kept this running, I, whatever. It, that's the important thing. Find something that you're interested in, find a project that you'd like to do and get involved with it. And yeah. if you keep doing that, and if you have sort of something in mind, like creating permanent jobs in space, and just use that as a compass to make decisions, like will this decision get me in that direction? Um, that's, you know, and it's always somewhat of a random walk. Right. But that's that's what I've done to, to sort of get to where I am right now, is just continue to to get involved and put myself forward on, on that uh, on that basis with my compass being will this get a permanent jobs in space. So what do you reckon you would be doing if you weren't in the space industry or do you think you're just like destined to have gone into this field? I, I think I've been in this field so long, I can't imagine doing anything else. <laughs> what would I be doing? Um, I might be seasteading. Um, I, uh, I might be trying to colonize Antarctica. Um, I, I don't know. I, uh, I would be pushing some field forward, I would like to think. Um, for uh, you know, the, uh, There's one thing that, that I do find very interesting from an existential risk perspective, and that's the dangers of AI. And working on AI safety, I think, is, is a, a huge, huge existential risk with, with vastly under-resourced. Um, yeah, that, that is, that is one thing that I've seriously considered jumping into. But wouldn't AI technically improve the space industry, you would say? So like the further development of AI means that we would venture further into space. And it can help with, uh, it definitely helps with, with decision processes and, and data analysis and, uh, and such things. Um, the question is, is it safe long-term? Is there a point at which the AI turns on us? Um, and that's the danger of AI. And yeah. that's where research into how to design a safe AI is both very tricky and very important. Because if we create a, a general purpose artificial intelligence that, uh, that has the goal of survival, then humans are not necessarily required for that survival and in fact may be seen as a threat. And so that's a dangerous future. Um, we should try at all costs to avoid that future. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about um, Space Arena at Silicon Valley? So what inspired you to get into that? And it's one of your um, startups. So could you give people more insight about what it's about? Yeah, so I started at an interesting time in my life. I just uh, coming out of deep space industry. So that was handed over to one of the CEO. Um, and before it was, it was sold to Bradford Space. 
the um, I, I was looking at you know, what what will I do next, and so I went through a, a bit of sort of soul searching about you know, let's let's go back and, and address am I still on the same track? Is this still making me happy? Is this still what I want to achieve? And then because the answers to those are all yes, I started looking at different business models. And so I was thinking, you know, should we create a commodities exchange in space which will help accelerate, um, you know, creating this market and uh, for, for things in orbit and accelerate asteroid mining? Uh, should we start manufacturing semiconductors in orbit? Because you can make semiconductors with three orders of magnitude lower defect densities when you make them in a zero gravity environment. There's huge opportunities for manufacturing in zero G. Uh, and I think that, that we haven't even scratched the surface of that. Um, but one of the ideas with Space Arena was about generating uh, entertainment content. So uh, in the last year, Tom Cruise has announced he wants to shoot a movie in space, uh, which is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch. Um, but there are, there are now the, the tourism activities are coming back. What are the tourists going to do when they're there? So my big, hairy, audacious goal with Space Arena is to organize the first Olympic scale sporting event in space. I want to see tens of thousands of people watching athletes compete in space, doing, doing you know, games, setting records, doing things that, that at the moment we can't imagine. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. That might take 20 or 30 years. But then what can we do today to start working towards that? That was the thinking with Space Arena. And there's huge potential to that. A lot of people wanted to back that idea. Um, but I found that I didn't have a co-founder that understood how to sell entertainment content. And at the same time in parallel, um, we were forming OrbitFab as an idea. And what we found there was that there was an obvious gap in the market. It was a market I understood because I understand space tech and it's more of a technical sale in, in that respect. And so um, and the team came together, the customers were clearly hungry for, for a solution. There were, there were new satellite servicing companies being formed, um, but the, the big problem with their business model was they needed fuel. And so all of the things converged to really point to the, the fact that OrbitFab was, was coming together at the right time and it was the right team and everything else. And so I put uh, Space Arena on hold and, uh, and you know, the first Olympics in space will have to wait. But, uh, but maybe I'll get back to that once, uh, once OrbitFab is on its feet and things are going really well. But how would entertainment um, on space differ to entertainment on Earth? Well, uh, if you've ever seen any of the movies of uh, uh, videos of, of astronauts and what they've done in space and Skylab back in the, the 1970s was doing some just amazing gymnastics and things because you have you have no gravity. <laughs> you can you can you can use your body in a very different way. And so that's that's what we're looking at. How does that create a different entertainment experience, a different viewing experience, a different participatory experience? Um, how, how do you engage with that? Um, that was that was a lot of the questions. Would people be willing to pay money to view or participate in sports in space? And the answer we got back was a resounding yes. How much they're able to pay, whether it would pay for itself, uh, whether it would pay enough to justify the cost, which is going to be enormous in the early days. Those are all open questions. That was the things we had to answer. But would people pay something for the opportunity? The answer was yes. And that's where you've got to start with the business. You've got to start with a desire for people to, to, to get something they can't get and a willingness to pay for it. So some people think that space tourism, also a form of entertainment, is just going up there and going around the Earth. Is that what it is or is there more to it? Well, tourism on Earth can be just going around and looking out the window of your car and seeing things go by. Um, and if that's what you like to do, then that's great. 
other people will want to do other activities. And so uh, if you look at the tourists that have been to the International Space Station, Richard Garriott shot a short video movie in space. Uh, what that proved was that astronauts make terrible actors, but, uh, but they clearly have a lot of fun. Um, they're also, you know, they, they do experiments, they shoot little videos, they spend a lot of time looking at the Earth, um, but we haven't even started providing a, a, an, an engaging, like haven't even started exploring what an engaging experience is. We haven't had a facility big enough to play sports in space. But now Axiom and NanoRacks are both planning facilities. Uh, and, and I've talked to a couple of other startup companies that are, that are thinking along the same lines. How do you provide a space that allows people to just do something interesting and entertaining and really take advantage of the fact that you're in zero gravity in a, in a really interesting way? And uh, yeah, we, we haven't scratched the surface. People have got to come up with some wacky, crazy ideas before we find some that, uh, that, that reliably are going to provide a great, a great experience that people want to pay for. Yeah. So what do you want to say to people? Because there's actually quite um, a lot of negative backlash for people who don't really understand the space industry and what we do. Um, the, a common thing that they say would be, oh, we haven't even discovered all of the ocean. Why are we pushing boundaries and going to space? So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, the first observation is we don't have to please everybody. Not everybody has to be impressed. Um, what you have to do is please enough people. And, and if those people are willing to pay you, you can put together a business and, uh, and away you go. And uh, as long as nobody's stopping you, you can go off and build a business on, on pretty much anything, right? You can build a plant, business planting trees. You can build a business rowing people across a river. You can build a business launching people into space. And you only need enough people to pay the bills to make that business. And you know, free society, advantage of a free society, anyone can go off and, and do anything that they like as long as it's not you know, impinging on, on other people to any significant extent. And so you know, that's, that's really my answer is those of us that want to go, uh, let's go. Uh, I have a, a friend in Canada who, uh, uh, who I, I will, will quote or, or misquote. Um, Henry Spencer said, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. The rest of us have other plans. I'm a university student and I want to get started and get involved. What should I do first? Well, you've got a great grounding with your, uh, your engineering degree, which, which is a, a good platform to get into all the technical aspects of, of the industry. Um, so look for the opportunities. Uh, it sounded like you're, you're heavily involved in the rocket team and, uh, and congrats on that. There was no rocket team at UNSW when I was there. I love it. Um, do that, learn everything you can and then leverage that when you're looking for, for jobs. Um, I know that uh, Gilmore Space is hiring a, as many rocket scientists as it can. Um, so there's lots of opportunities even in Australia, um, but there are a lot of opportunities internationally too, and a lot of expertise internationally that, that you can learn from. And so don't be constrained just to looking at Australia, do look, do look more broadly, but uh, yeah, seize those opportunities, be persistent, and uh, you know, don't take no for an answer when you're, when you're pursuing those opportunities. If you keep getting knocked back, just go and do it anyway. Find ways to do a side project, even if you, uh, you end up working on a job that, uh, that isn't lined up. My first job out of university was working on power stations, uh, working on uh, coal and gas-fired power stations. Um, but I managed to, to argue my way into a job in Canada building satellites. And uh, I did that because I helped to organize the Australian Space Development Conference. And I got to know some of the people there and I got a recommendation from there. So it was a matter of just doing and continually keeping to do uh, things on the side, um, things that weren't necessarily paying the bills that day. 
but moved me generally in that direction and, and got me exposed to the right people and allowed me to learn more about um, you know, the, the business practices, the technology, whatever it was that, that I was working on. So uh, yeah, get out there, put yourself out there and, and do things and the opportunities will come around. Yeah. So this is my last question and it's an off topic question, but when you did, you, if I'm not mistaken, you did Antarctic research, right? So how has that benefited you in a way that you moved into the space industry? Yeah, a couple of really interesting things on that. So um, after working in Canada for a few years and, and, and the US for a few months, the Australian Space Research Program was getting set up, which was you know, the, the previous attempt at a, a space program in Australia. It was pretty small, but um, yeah, I, I got together with some of the people that, that uh, I'd worked with previously in Australia and, and we put in a proposal to do Antarctic broadband, high-speed internet to Antarctica. Now, I wanted this because I wanted to build a KA band transponder that was you know, so a very small radio, but very high bandwidth uh, that, that um, could be used in deep space to communicate between an asteroid probe and the Earth very cost effectively in a very small satellite. I saw that as one of the cost drivers is the deep space communication. Uh, so it was great to be able to leverage a program where we could build, a, um, build this system to, to be operational over Antarctica. The vision for that company was very much about growing a global communications company. So if first we could have built an operational constellation serving Antarctica, we would then have built an operational constellation serving the equatorial plane of the Earth. And then we would have built a, a global constellation with tens of thousands of satellites. That same idea, and that was 2009, uh, it was perhaps a, a bit early. Uh, and definitely Australian investors didn't understand the idea of a global communications constellation of tiny satellites. Uh, a few years later, you've got OneWeb, Starlink, Telesat, uh, Kuiper. There's very similar ideas to what we had back in 2009, um, but the time is better and their resources, yeah, their access to resources is much better. So we actually built that, the first KA band transponder for a CubeSat or, or NanoSat. Uh, unfortunately, the, the funding in Australia ran out. We didn't get the, the follow-on funding to that. Um, but, uh, but through that, I, uh, I was understanding the market in Australia. I did the, a lot of the business development. So, so talking to all of the actors down there and the customers, and I saw this opportunity to do a, a postgraduate certificate in Antarctic studies at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, which included two weeks down on the ice. And so I, uh, I got the, the opportunity to do that. One of the fascinating things there, and I've always been looking at um, the political models and, the, and the, the, the sort of regulations around Antarctica, which is considered a, a global commons. And the international, sea, um, international waters and the international seabed is another like global commons. And space is, is the third one. So if we look at the parallels between the three and the differences in how they're regulated and how they're managed and whether that's been successful for however you define success. And there are many definitions of success. So learning how the, um, the political organization and the treaties and everything else were negotiated in Antarctica gave me a completely different appreciation for how this international, the Outer Space Treaty at the UN is administered and managed and the International Telecommunications Union and the other parts of, of space law. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was really fantastic. Um, yeah, very useful in a, in a lot of ways. Wait, have, have you been to space or will you go in the future? Oh, not yet. I haven't made any jobs up there yet that I go and take, but uh, it's my intention that one day I'll take a one-way trip to space and, uh, and I'll join the, the, those with permanent jobs that aren't coming back. Oh, okay. 
Is there anything else you'd like to add to the podcast? I, uh, I assume the, the audience here is um, predominantly students. I'd encourage you to, to look for the opportunities and where you don't see them, go and make your own. Um, there are so many more opportunities in the world right now um, than, than there have been in the past in this. So it really is a fascinating time in the industry. Um, you know, it's, it's your generation that is going to take advantage and, uh, of all of this make the first permanent jobs in space, go out there and, and take those jobs up and, and you know, make humanity an interplanetary species. That is going to happen in your lifetime if it doesn't happen in mine. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting time to be alive. All right. That concludes today's podcast. Thank you again for joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish you best of luck in your endeavors and choose to a glorious future in uniting man and space. And thank you everyone for tuning into our first episode. You can look more into Daniel and Orbit Fab in the link below. We hope you all look forward to seeing our other podcasts coming up this year. Right. Bye. Thanks, Wayne. Bye.